We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 as we jump back in here to our series in Ecclesiastes. And before Emily reads our passage for us this morning, um, let's pray as we confess our need for the Spirit's help together. So let's pray, church. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you that you desire to teach us. Thank you that you have gathered us here to hear from you. Holy Spirit, give us ears to listen well. We need your help. Amen. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity but God is the one you must fear. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, one thing that we have seen during our time here in Ecclesiastes is that we as human beings crave meaning and purpose. As we live and move and have our being in this world, we are constantly looking around and searching for meaning. But just like the, the preacher in Ecclesi- but just like the preacher in Ecclesiastes, all too often this search ends up empty. We're, we've certainly all had moments in our life, right? Or at least I'm sure you can relate with me, where you are sure that that this job or that that relationship, that by becoming popular, by finally accomplishing this feat, that it would finally give you the meaning that you've been looking for, the meaning that you desire only to find that these things never truly satisfy or at least they don't satisfy for long. With Bono, we are all left singing that we still haven't found what we're looking for. And as we turn to our passage this morning, it seems like the preacher, at least for a brief moment, is tired of looking for meaning under the sun this phrase here referring to, to the world that it, as it is right now, this world that we can see and experience. He wants to look, he doesn't want to look under the sun anymore. In our passage here, the writer, the preacher is, is looking beyond the sun to God. And he's asking the question, what about religion? Can we find meaning in religion? Can we find meaning and purpose in worship? He thinks to himself that perhaps the peace, the purpose, and the meaning that he's been looking for can be found in religion as if he only, if only he were to go to church, if only he were to go to worship, if he gets religion, then everything will be okay. Have you ever thought that? 
You sitting here right now perhaps thinking that if you just get religion, it will fill that hole in your life. When our passage, the preacher here wants to show us that we can, in fact, find real meaning. We can find real lasting meaning in worship, in in religion. But the preacher wants to show us that it's not just in any kind of worship that we can find meaning. In our passage here, the preacher wants to show us that meaning can only be found in God-centered worship. He here wants us to see that meaning can only be found in God-centered worship. And it's that phrase, God-centered worship, that we're going to be focusing on this morning because of how easy it is for every one of us in this room to be tempted to make worship about us and not about God. It's well known that two of the top things people look for, they consider when they are looking for a church, the top two things are what is the music and what is their children's ministry like? As people are are gauging what church to go to for, for many, and many studies have shown that those are the top two things people are looking for. And there is nothing wrong with wanting a church to have music that's not distracting. There is nothing wrong with wanting a church to have children's ministry that is safe, that is teaching your kids the gospel. I'm not saying that those things aren't important, but when those things become the primary purpose for our worship, when we, when we make things like that the focus point of worship, we're not having God-centered worship, but we're having us-centered worship. When we make the worship service all about us, whether we like the music whether the sermon was entertaining enough, and sorry in advance to all of you for that one, whether, the, whether the, uh, the kids program was the best or whether the church has the best activities for youth, when we make church primarily about those things, the writer to the Hebrews wants us, the writer to the, pre- the, the preacher here in Ecclesiastes wants us to see that worship will lose its meaning. And thankfully, God knows that we are all tempted in these ways. He knows that we are tempted to make worship about us, what we do when we gather here on Sunday mornings about us. And here in this passage, he calls us to guard three areas of our worship that we might keep him at the center. In these verses here, we see three elements of our worship that God calls us to guard, to be careful about, to watch over so that we will keep him at the center of our worship and so experience worship that's truly meaningful and life-giving. The first element that God calls us to guard in this passage is our posture in worship. Look with me at verse 1. The, the writer to the Ecclesiastes, the preacher here, he says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Here in these opening words, the preacher wants us to see that how we come to the house of God matters. How we approach the house of God matters. We are to guard our steps. Now, when referring here to the the house of God, the the preacher most likely is referring to the great temple that Solomon built But for you and for me on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection, when we read this reference here to the house of God, it's really referring to wherever the people of God gather to worship. So for you and me this morning, we can read this as God telling us to guard your steps when you go to the La Mesa Community Center. 
the preacher is telling us here that we are not just supposed to come flippantly to worship because our posture matters. Now, before we look exactly at what our posture should be, I do want to highlight a four-letter word in this verse that is super important for us to see. Did you notice there in the, the, when the preacher is speaking, he says to guard your steps when you go to the house of God. He doesn't say to guard your steps if you go, but he says to guard your steps when you go. And in highlighting that word and using that word when, it's really a, a, an amazing thing that the preacher is doing as he is assuming the good of going to worship. He is assuming the good for you and for me to go to church. You see, in this letter, in this book where he has really, or he already has, and he's going to continue to second guess almost everything that we do in life, when it comes to worship, when it comes to gathering to worship God, there's no second guessing. The preacher's not second guessing the, the importance of going to worship, but he is assuming the good of it because he knows that when we come to worship, that good things happen, that beneficial, life-changing things happen to us. So this morning, I would just encourage you to consider whether you're listening to this online, for those of you podcasting this, or just for those of you who are here who for perhaps regular church, church attendance isn't a priority for you, I would just encourage you to, to feel the weight of this when and to consider what changes the Spirit might be calling you to consider in terms of your priorities when it comes to worship. Because when we come to worship, we are coming to the house of God, to be in the presence of God and worship him. As we're going to see here, as the, as the preacher shows us, simply showing up in and of itself isn't, isn't enough, though. The preacher wants us to guard our posture in worship. He wants us to see that how we come is important, and he shows us how we should come. And, and I would just summarize it as he calls us to come with a posture of receiving from God rather than a posture of performing for God. He wants us to come to receive, not to come to perform. We see this as the preacher says, continuing in verse one, he says, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. And talking about the sacrifice of fools here, it seems like the preacher is talking about those who come to the temple to offer their sacrifice, not from a heart of worship, but one of performance. One that is simply going through the motions, performing to be seen by God and to be seen by others. And it seems like the purpose behind their performance here was to somehow earn God's favor. It seems like by coming to offer this sacrifice of fools that the preacher calls it, that they were thinking that by simply showing up and by making the sacrifice, that somehow God would be required to forgive their sins, that God would be somehow to be required to respond to their worship, even though their hearts were far from him. And I think that while you and I don't come to the community center with animal sacrifices, I do think that we can fall into this same temptation of simply going through the motions in worship, of performing to be seen and to be thought well of by others, or by coming on Sunday mornings to perform 
because we think that we're trying to earn God's favor. We do this when we think that by giving to the church financially, that by serving on a, on a ministry team, or even by showing up regularly to church on Sunday mornings, that God is going to, to give us what we want. I, uh, this last week, I, I read a, a story of a, of a pastor who was talking about a conversation that he had with a guy um, who had just started coming back to church. They hadn't seen him in a really long time. He started coming back, bringing his family to worship. And when the pastor asked him, hey, what, what was it that brought you back? What was it that kind of prompted you to start coming back to church? The man said that it was because he was having financial problems and he had an invention patent pending. And so he was thinking that if he just got him and his family back into church, if they just started going through the motions, that, that his patent would be approved, that God would somehow be required to bless him, his patent would be approved, and he would become a huge success. I mean, now, you and I might not be as blatant as that man about why we come to church, but I do think that oftentimes you and I can be tempted in the same ways. We can think that just by coming to church on Sunday mornings, by doing the right things, that God will somehow be required to bless us, whether it's giving us the job that we want, whether it's fixing a problem in our life, providing a relationship that we're looking for. There are just so many different ways that we can do this. But when we do this, when we come to perform for God or when we come to earn from God, we're doing what the preacher calls offering a sacrifice of fools. Rather, the preacher doesn't want us to come. He doesn't want us to come performing, but he wants us to come with a posture of receiving from God. We see this in verse 1 where he says, to draw near, to listen is better. When we come to worship, we come to listen. We come to hear from God. And this is just absolutely amazing. In fact, this reality is so simple that you and I can miss how profound of a reality it is that when you and I come to the community center, when you and I gather to worship, we are coming to hear from God. When we come, when we gather together for worship, the God who created the universe, the one who upholds and sustains your very life, the one who is filling your breath with lungs right now is pleased to speak to you. He desires to reveal himself to you. That's why we come with a posture of receiving, not a posture of performing, because we can't do anything. We can't give anything to God. He is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases, but we come with a posture to receive because God in his grace is pleased to speak to us. He wants to reveal himself to us, to show us who he is, to remind us once again of what he has done for us in Jesus that we might behold his glory and that we might worship. That's why we come. We come primarily on Sunday mornings to hear from God. We hear from God in the call to worship. We hear from God as he's speaking to us through any impressions that are shared through the mic. God is speaking to us in the songs that we sing to him and the songs that we sing to one another. And he is speaking to us most significantly through his word preached and his word made visible in the Lord's Supper. 
In all of these things, God is revealing himself to us. He is condescending, coming down to us, revealing himself to us, reminding us of his great love. The preacher doesn't want us to miss this. He doesn't want us to miss the voice of God. And so he tells us to guard your posture. He tells us to, when you come, come to listen. And as we do this, we're fighting against that temptation towards me-centered worship when we remember that we are coming to hear from God, not to perform for God. I think there are a couple ways we can apply this to our lives as we think about worship. And the first is I just think this should, should level set our expectations for worship. I think as we come on Sunday mornings, there should, be, there should be this expectancy, there should be this excitement in our hearts that as we come, as we gather together, that God wants to reveal himself to us and through his spirit, working through his word and working through us, he does that. He speaks to us, he reveals himself to us. And I just wonder if a lot of our frustrations or our complaints with church would be solved or perhaps at least be put in perspective when we remember that worship is primarily about hearing from God. And so for our worship to be God-centered, first we see here in verse one that it must be that we must guard our posture. But secondly, the preacher calls us to guard our prayers as well. We see this in verses two and three. Look with me at verse two. In verse two, the preacher says, do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. In the rest of this passage, the preacher turns our attention, turns our attention to, or turns his attention to our speech. In fact, in, in the remaining six verses, there are no less than 14 references to our words, whether he's talking about our mouth, our voice, our words, or the vows that we say. There's this, this focus on what we say, what we say in worship. And here in verses two and three, the focus is specifically on our prayers, the words that we speak to God. And his instruction for our prayers in worship are quite simple, and they're summed up at the end of verse two where he tells us to let your words be few. We keep God at the center of our worship when we are not quick to speak to God, when we are not quick to speak in God's presence. As he cautions us twice in this verse, he tells us to not be rash with our mouth, to not be hasty to utter a word before God. This makes sense, right? We want to be, we want our words to be few. We want to be slow to speak in worship because as we saw in verse one, we come near, we come to worship to listen to God. And the simple truth is we can't listen very well if we're always talking. But it seems here in this verse that there's also a word of correction here for those who, are who were tempted here to think that through their long or their verbose prayers, that through their elegance or their eloquence in prayer, or simply that through the repetitiveness of their words, that they could somehow manipulate God into giving them what they want, making worship about themselves through their prayers. We see that this wasn't just a temptation here in Ecclesiastes, but Jesus warns about the same temptation in Matthew 6, where he tells his disciples, he says, and when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, 
for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Here it's just speaking to the same reality where we can make even our prayers about us, about getting what we want as we think that through the crafting of our prayers that we can somehow make God indebted to us. That if we simply pray in the right way, if we use the right words, that we can, we can control God and we can cause him to have to respond to us. But the preacher says we can't do that. He gives us the reason why in verse 2 where he tells us, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. In saying this here and telling us this here, he wants to remind us that while God is close to us, God does speak and God does, he does speak to us. He's near as we saw in verse one. He doesn't want us to miss the fact that God is also transcendent, that God is far above us. He is holy other, he is awesome and majestic and he is not going to be manipulated or controlled by us. He is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And so rather than going on and on in our words, in our prayers, thinking that we can somehow manipulate God, instead the preacher tells us to be in awe of him and to let our words be few. The Lord's Prayer, I think, is a great example of this, uh, a wonderful prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. It's just over 50 words. It takes 30 seconds to pray this prayer. And that's how Jesus thought, taught his disciples to pray. We pray to our Father in heaven, perhaps an echo here. And the prayer, as Jesus models it for us, is God-centered through and through as we pray for God-centered priorities, his name, his kingdom, and his will. And as we pray with God-centered dependence, asking him to provide all that we need. You see, prayer is an essential part of our worship. But as we are seeing here, like all elements in worship, there is a temptation for us to make it me-centered. And so how do we guard our prayers? How do we make them God-centered? Well, I think to paraphrase Lin-Manuel Miranda, I think you can say that the preacher is calling us to talk less and worship more. He's saying to let your words be few and your wonder be great. He's calling us to marvel at God who is in the heavens and to remember that we are on earth. It is God who is great and greatly to be praised. And so in our prayers, he calls us to talk less and worship more, marvel at who he is. That is how we keep worship God-centered. That is how we find meaning in our worship as we gather together. And that is by being in awe and wonder of who God is in our prayers. So I would just encourage you as you consider your prayer life, even this past week, just wonder if it's been more me-centered or more God-centered. Have your prayers been more focused on trying to get things from God, trying to manipulate or control God into giving you what you want or making this happen or stopping this from happening? If that is the case, I would just want to encourage you, the preacher would want to encourage you to grow in God-centered prayer by beholding who he is, by meditating on his awesomeness and his majesty, and to see that he is in heaven and we are on earth. So we keep our worship God-centered, 
as we guard our posture, as we guard our prayers. And lastly here, he calls us to guard our promises. Follow along as I read verses four and five. The preacher says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Here the preacher turns his, his attention and focuses on the vows or the promises that we can make to God in our worship. You see, it wasn't uncommon for the Israelites when they would come to offer their sacrifices to God for them to also make vows or make promises to him. They would, they would make these vows or these promises to God um, in, in an attempt to gain God's favor. They would make these promises urging God to grant a specific request. It was, it was kind of like a, a quid pro quo, you could say, as they were saying, God, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. We, we see this all over the Bible, and perhaps the most famous example is in 1 Samuel, where Hannah is in the temple and she is promising God that if he will only give her a child, then she would then dedicate that child to the Lord. He would be a Nazarite and she would, would dedicate him. She, she's making this promise to God that if he would do this for her, then she would respond in this way. We see this in the New Testament as well. In Acts 18, we're told that, that Paul, um, it seemed he had made a Nazarite vow of some sort, and Paul cuts his hair to fulfill a vow that he had made. We see that in Acts 18, 18. To be honest, I'm just, I'm just struck that this practice of making promises to God, of saying, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. I am just shocked that it is never looked down upon in scripture. Never is it ever, never do they say, don't do that. But one of the things that we see, whether it's in Deuteronomy 23 or right here in Ecclesiastes 5, we see that when you do make this vow to God, we see the Bible time and time again underlying the importance of keeping your promise, of holding up your end of the deal. That's why he says that it is better for you to just simply not make a vow to God than to make a vow and to not keep it. It's in light of this that we can understand what the preacher is saying here in verse 6. In verse 6, he says, let not your mouth lead you into sin. That's saying, don't let your mouth lead you into sin by making a vow that you're not going to keep. He goes on to say, and do not say before the messenger. This, was, this would have been someone who worked in the temple whose responsibility it was to go from house to house, keeping track of everyone who made vows to God, seeing if they had fulfilled them. There were messengers from the temple who would go around to see and to ensure that people were keeping their vows. He's saying, do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake, saying, oh, it was really a mistake. I didn't mean it. I didn't, didn't mean to make that promise after God had already given what you'd asked. And so he says, why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands. Here we see that we must be sure to keep our promises to God because he's going to hold us accountable for our words. And again, the preacher's point here is to help us not make worship about us, focused on what we can get from God, but to keep God at the center of our worship and to make it about him. 
Now, I get in this reality, you might be wondering, as I thought as I read this verse going, what in the world does this have to do with us today where we are not bringing animals to the temple to sacrifice? But the reality is, is that we actually make promises like this all the time. In fact, we just did it 30 minutes ago when we made promises to God as a congregation, as Dan Arthur up here made promises to God, as we as a congregation affirmed we do making vows to God that we are going to do those things. If you're a member of the church, you've made promises to God when you became a member. You did it when you either dedicated a child or when you were in the congregation and you were standing and making promises to walk with the parents. Certainly in weddings, those are just uh, another example of where you come to church and you are making promises in the presence of God. There are certainly formal ways that we do that, but there are also ways that we do this that are a bit more informal or a bit more private. I mean, just think of the last time you experienced a personal crisis in your life. Whether it had something to do with your health, something to do with your finances, or perhaps maybe a family member, a parent, or a child, or someone you love was going through something hard. In the midst of that, have you ever just found yourself thinking or saying, God, if you just take this away, God, if you will just give me this job, if you will just provide this, if you will get my children out of this, or if you will bring my children back to you, then I promise I'll walk more closely with you, or I'll promise I'll do this, or I promise I'll do that. I think the reality is, is that we do that all the time. As I was thinking about this reality, I, I can remember sitting at my desk when I worked in aerospace, and I had applied for this other job, and I was just to, to move departments in the company. And I can remember think, like, saying, like, God, if you give me this job, if you let me move over to this other position, then I promise I'm going to be more faithful in my evangelism to, to my new teammates. And I just think, right, and that's, that's what we're doing, right? We're making this promise to God saying, look, if you're going to do this for me, then I promise I'm going to do this with you. And again here, I could be wrong, but it doesn't seem like the Bible is saying don't do that. The Bible here is simply saying that if you do do that, then fulfill your promise. That's how we make worship about God and not about us. And that is by keeping our promises, by holding up our end of the bargain. So this is the third element of our worship that the preacher calls us to guard. We are to guard our promises because this is another way where we are tempted to empty worship of its meaning by making it about us. Well, as we turn to verse 7, verse 7 really functions as a, as a conclusion or as a summary for this whole passage where the preacher sums up his whole, whole argument as he's getting, basically he's saying, here's the bottom line. When you consider worship, when you are seeking to guard your worship, here's what you must do. Here's what you must keep in mind. He says, but God is the one you must fear. In contrast to many dreams or many words, which are only vanity, as we seek to have God-centered worship, the preacher here is calling us to fear God. And it's this reality, it's the reality of us fearing God, fearing God that is the ultimate safeguard against me-centered worship. Because when we are rightly fearing God, there is just no possible way that we can make worship about us. But what does it mean to fear God? Here is the, is the preacher telling us that we should be afraid of God. I think the answer is yes, 
but not in the way that you might think. Because the fear that we are to have of God isn't a fear that we're going to be hurt or a fear that we're going to be punished by him. As if we have to walk on pins and needles around him, always afraid that we don't set him off. That's not the Bible's picture of God here. Instead, instead, as we think about what it means to fear God, I found this analogy from Tim Keller helpful. He, he invites us to imagine that you are suddenly introduced to someone that you have always admired, someone that you have hero worshipped. I think people come to mind for us, whether that's a, an athlete, a musician, or someone in your career field that you just really look up to. He says, now imagine that you're in that person's presence, and as you, you reach out your hand to shake their hand, it hits you, that you can't believe that you are actually meeting this person, and to your embarrassment, you realize that your hand, your hand is shaking as you're ready to meet this person. You, you are starting to sweat. You suddenly notice how much you are sweating in this person's presence and you are having a hard time talking. Well, in this moment here, what's going on, right, is, is you're not afraid of being hurt or being punished by this person. Quite the opposite. In that moment, you are afraid of doing something stupid or saying something inappropriate to the person or to the occasion. It's your joyful admiration of this person that has a fearful, a fearful aspect to it. You are, you are in awe, you are in wonder at finally getting to meet this person and you don't wanna do anything to mess up that moment. And that's what the preacher is getting at here. We are to fear God, not in the sense that we are to be afraid of punishment, but in the sense that we, as we gather for worship, we are to be so thankful and grateful that he has gathered us together in his presence to hear from him, to receive from him that we don't want to do anything to ruin the moments. And as we think about this reality of being able to be in God's presence, to hear from him, we see that it's only the gospel that can produce this fear in our hearts. It is the good news of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection for us, where we see God's willing heart, where we see his love for us on full display, where we see that he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And as we meditate on these realities, as we meditate on the reality of who God is for us, then we see that the only proper response is to fear him, to be so overwhelmed by the love and by the grace that he has toward us that we tremble at the privilege of being in his presence, that we are filled with an intense longing to honor him as we gather to worship in our thoughts, in our feelings, in our actions, there's this sense that we don't want to ruin the moment. In our searching for meaning, the preacher here is showing us that we can, in fact, find meaning and purpose in our worship, but it's only in the God-centered worship that flows from rightly fearing him. I want to release the ushers here to prepare to serve the Lord's Supper and as we close, I just want to invite us to, to take a moment to reflect on our worship, to reflect even on how you have come to worship this morning.
And as we're going to take the Lord's Supper, to be reminded of what we first heard, that as we come and as we gather together, we come to hear from God, we come to receive from him. And as we take the bread and the cup, we come to be reminded of his great love for us. And we are reminded in the Lord's Supper how he died for all of the ways that we sin in worship by making it about us and not him. So why don't we spend a few moments in light of this meaningful worship, in light of, in light of receiving from God, to spend a few moments just to commune with the Lord in prayer, to reflect on how you have come to worship. And then let us glory and rejoice in the fact that in Christ, God has made a way for us to come. And there is forgiveness for all of the ways that we, that we fail in our worship, that we can, um, we can still continue to come. So let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that you, Lord, that you desire for us to come. Lord, we come in many imperfect ways, and yet you desire to hear us. You speak to us. You reveal yourself to us. Lord, we do thank you for that. We thank you for the bread and the cup that we are about to receive that remind us once again of your great love for us. As we are reminded that it is as we come before you, as we come to worship you, that there is true meaning and purpose in our Godward worship. Father, we thank you for that reality. Amen. Well, when you are ready, the um, Lord's Supper servers are here. You can come receive a, pre a piece of the bread. You can take a cup of the wine or the juice, whichever your conscience permits. And as you take them, hold on to them. We're going to sit together. We'll take the Lord's Supper together. And as you do so, reflect on the joy of being able to worship God. Reflect on the joy that he has called us to worship him, and we can gather in his presence. So come when you're ready.
kindness from the Lord that as we gather together, he's given us the bread and the cup to remind us of his great love for us that we might fear him. And we do this on the night, when he, we do this because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Well, sisters and brothers, let us stand and let us respond to our great God who's called us to draw near to him.